0: well we are back in the book of Esther and as we open up God's word this morning I want to ask you a question as you look around the world what do you think is the world's biggest need what do you think is the world's biggest need well I would say depending on the day And what has happened recently, if you ask me, I'm either going to say the gospel of Jesus Christ or for God's justice to come down on this wicked world. I am seriously torn between these two things. uh, On some days, on some days, uh, you know, I think. And I think these are my better days. I don't want anyone to be subject to God's justice, but that all might be saved from God's wrath by finding new life in Jesus. But there are other times when the wickedness of the world and its people makes itself too painfully obvious to ignore. That when my, On those days, my heart cries out like Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Or like Amos, may justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen? Have you had those days? Where you're just like, Lord, if you would just rip open the sky and come down and deal with all of this mess that we sinners have made of your world? you feel like that sometimes? Do you just want to see evil people brought down and God and His people rescued and exalted instead? If you do, then today is your day. Today is what we see. This is what we see as God's justice come about at the end of the book of Esther. So if you're able, I'd like you to stand as I read. The book of Esther, chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, then things seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And the edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal studs, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown, and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command, his edict reached. There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many people, many of the peoples from the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Father, um, this is a text that maybe we never read, some of us. And we read in your word some hard things about justice being done. Father, help us to see these things with, with your eyes and to apply them rightly to our lives. And to uh to learn to love you and your word more and more and to walk in its light. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. Now I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery novel. Uh Karen and I are are I love to watch uh like you know, British crime dramas. Okay, right now we're watching one that's a British crime drama that takes place on a submarine. It's like all kinds of good, goodness all wrapped together in one thing, right? It's amazing. Um but I love those things and I and, and you know why I love them? It's it's for one thing, and you all know what it is. It's the big reveal at the end, right? where you see all of how all the little clues dropped all along the way, all the little pieces from parts of the story that you've been reading and studying up to now, all fit together and you go, oh, oh, I didn't see that was important, right? And then it's like all of a sudden it all the curtain rolls back and you see what's been going on behind the scenes. And so you finally understand how it had to be Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with the lead pipes, right? And um, and so here what we're seeing in this chapter is the unfolding of all of the ways that God has been at work in this story. Despite the fact that Esther and Mordecai aren't necessarily sterling examples of devotion to God, God is still working through them. Through the challenges of power politics, through the challenges of palace intrigue in a pagan empire, At a time when God's people are exiled and under the control of people who do not acknowledge God or have anything to do with Him. Even though Haman intended to murder every last one of God's people, he has himself been executed and his position and his estate have been given to the very people he intended to kill. Esther asked the king for the privilege of being able to issue a new decree, this time through Mordecai, the king's new prime minister, counteracting in every detail the decree issued by Haman earlier. Now, this is important that you understand this. Uh, You read in Esther and also in the book of Daniel how the laws of the Medes and the Persians did not have a provision for repeal Right. In our system, one of the beauties of it is that if you write a bad law, you can pass a law undoing it. Right. But in the Medo-Persian Empire, once the king issued his decree and it was sealed with the seal from his signet ring and went out to all the empire, you could not un- just say, hey, my bad. Right. Because the king is regarded as infallible. So what you but so the, so you can't poke a hole in that by repealing one of his decrees but what you can do is issue a new decree undoing the effects of that one that way both laws get to still be in effect right and so so once a law was signed sealed, delivered it was law and the only way to undo it was a new one and so if you compare if you line up the decree issued by Haman who was the king's former prime minister in chapter 3 and you line up the details of that one with this one in chapter 8 you'll see there in distinct parallels that it's the same day of the same month of the same year and the effects permitted are precisely the same With one major exception, that on the same day that Haman had devised for the Jews' destruction, the Jews also get to arm themselves and defend themselves from every one of the attackers who want to carry out Haman's decree. Now before this decree had been issued here in chapter 8, all of the Jews would have been subject to fully legalized genocide and robbery. Find a Jew and kill him and take his stuff. That was essentially the summary of the order that was against them. Now, anybody who tries to carry out Haman's decree can be forcibly resisted. On top of that, Mordecai, whom Haman had intended to torture to death in front of his house, now owns Haman's house and his lands, and he has replaced him as prime minister. And even people who had formerly been pagans have declared themselves to be Jews because they have seen how God has interacted with his people and how he has brought about a complete reversal of their circumstances and protected them. And they see that this is God's rescue. As I've said multiple times, this is the only book in the Scriptures where God's name is never mentioned. Not one time. Not in ten chapters. Is God's name ever mentioned, and yet this is God's rescue. Because if you see how this unfolds, it's way too coincidental. Amen? There's too many things that stack up and... and Uh, unfold in just the precise way they need to. For it to be anything other than the hand of God intervening. Even on behalf of people who have been doing their best up to this point, for the previous seven chapters, they've been doing their best to blend in and hide who they are. God has brought about a miraculous rescue and a reversal of the evil decrees and plots against his people. There's more to the story. I want to read on some more for you here in chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, so this was the third month, chapter 8, so this was March, now this would be December, so nine months later. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and satraps and governors and royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adaliah, and Eridatha, and Parmashta and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. On that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who were in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who gathered, who were in the king's provinces, also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So here's what happens. On the day when every last Jew in the empire, which would have been at this time every last Jew in the world, was subject to genocidal destruction, here's what happened instead. The enemies of God's people were all defeated. And it is not token opposition either. 75,510 men were killed trying to kill the Jews and plunder their homes. Seventy-five thousand five hundred and ten. That means there were likely, if you can imagine this, because usually the number killed in a battle is a fraction of the total number in the battle. Amen? Amen there were likely hundreds of thousands of people who came armed to kill the Jews in their homes. Of which there were 75,500 killed, 500 in Susa itself, plus the 10 sons of Haman, plus another 75,000 in the provinces of the empire. This was an incredible victory. This is against overwhelming opposition. This is by people who, let's remember, are not soldiers. These are people who had regular jobs. You know, like butcher, baker, candlestick maker kind of stuff, right? we have got to fight for their homes and families. Because every single one of them, down to the smallest infant, is liable to be killed under the order Haman sent forth. There were more than enough armed men to kill every last Jew, and yet they were not killed. In fact, they gained victory. And Esther asked for a second day for the Jews to defend themselves in Susa itself. I think the reason for that is because the fight is still ongoing at the end of the 13th day. She's like, uh, "We we we still need some more time to deal with all of the enemies here in my hometown where I live with the king. So it goes on for a second day in Susa and another 300 enemy are killed. Uh, by the end of the second day, despite the huge and terrifying number of armed enemies, the Jews are victorious in their self-defense. Now you should notice a couple things. This is a purely defensive war. A... That's very important. The death toll only lists men killed. No women or children of their enemies are mentioned except the sons of Haman who were most likely all adult men and who joined their enemies in killing them and trying to kill them, right? So the Jews did not go out to battle out of some sort of bloodlust. Like, oh, hey, it's our opportunity to go get our enemies, all the people that we don't like or that we owe money to or any of that kind of thing, right? It is people who are attacking them that they defend themselves against. The people who are determined to kill and rob them, they instead gain victory over. And note that the text says twice, actually three times, uh, they laid no hands on the plunder. Do you see that? They laid no hands on the plunder. Why is that mentioned? First of all, note that they had the right in chapter 8 to plunder their enemies. In other words, to, to do to them exactly what their enemies intended to do. But the text mentions three times that they didn't do that. Why is that? Well, I think the reason they didn't goes back a thousand years previously. If you'll remember Haman is referred to as the Agagite, okay? Agag was king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a people group descended from Abraham through uh, his uh, concubine Keturah, who were enemies of Israel from the time they came uh, came out of slavery in Egypt. As soon as they crossed the Red Sea, the Amalekites attacked. And so God said, uh, these people will be your enemies from generation to generation. And they were. They continually joined with Israel's enemies and tried to kill them. And um, King Saul went to war against them. And he was supposed to go to war and not take any plunder. And instead, he went to war, he kept, he saved the life of the king, whose name was Agag, and he took the best of the sheep and the best of the stuff, and he gathered it for himself. And as a result of his disobedience to God, you'll remember verse Samuel 15, Samuel the prophet comes and confronts him and says, why didn't you obey God? and God's and 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 Saul says I did I went and gained victory over all of my all of God's enemies and Samuel says well then what is all this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears and Samuel deals with Agag executes him and he tells Saul to obey is better than sacrifice to hearken to the voice of the Lord better than the fat of rams and because you did not obey God your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to someone who has a heart after God and he loses his kingdom over this because he did not obey God's instruction fast forward a thousand years the Jews are now in exile and the people of Amalek the descendants from King Agag are still trying to kill every last one of them. Only this time, the people of God obey not the royal decree, but the voice of God. Do not take the plunder from the Amalekite. Amazing. They get a do-over, and they do it right. This time. So... There's more to the story here. Let's read the rest of it. Verse 20 and following. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Dar and also the fifteenth day of the same year by year, and as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, and for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they should keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the Commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written, full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim, and letters were sent to all the Jews to the hundred and twenty-seven provinces, the kingdom of Ahasuerus, and the Dick, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, Yes, Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring. With regard to their fast and their, and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was, writ, it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on land and on coastlands of the sea and all acts of his power and might in the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This section of the book that I've just read for us functions in a sense as the epilogue, telling you what happened after all of these dramatic events unfolded. We find out what happened to Mordecai and how he became second in command under the king himself and how both he and Queen Esther instituted among all the Jews this festival of remembrance and celebration of God's deliverance from their enemies, which they gave the name Purim. The word the I am there is a pluralization, Okay. Um, whenever you see that in Hebrew, that's what that is. It's a, it's a pluralization of the noun that precedes it. And the per are the lots, the dice that Haman rolled to find out what day and what month he should murder all the Jews. And so they name the holiday dice, essentially, <laughs> right? The, the Feast of Dice that we should remember that there was a day when our number came up on the roll of the dice and God intervened on our behalf. A day of deliverance, a day for giving gifts to the poor, a day of giving gifts to each other. And it's a remarkable reminder that when God brings justice to the wicked, he also rewards and restores his people. And you see this reward and this restoration right here in this part of the story. That That the very man who intended to destroy the last remnant of the people of the Jews, the last living descendant of King Saul at the time, Mordecai, was in fact put in the very position of his enemy. And in fact, those who wanted to destroy the Jews were themselves destroyed. But it also serves as a reminder for us who are children of Abraham by faith rather than by bloodline that there are some important truths for us to remember for us in our day as well. So as we think about how to apply this portion of Scripture, I want to circle back to where we began. To the world's great need to the gospel of Jesus Christ and also to the promise of God's justice. I want to be really careful here because I don't want to get anyone confused that there is any uh, real parallel between the God of mercy and grace, the Father of Jesus Christ and King Headache, uh, King Ahasuerus uh, and the book of Esther. Amen? But Here is a reality that is a parallel reality to this story. You and I, believe it or not, are born under a decree of death. You and I are born under a decree of death. Because we are sinners, we deserve the death penalty for our sin. Amen? We do. The Word of God says in Romans uh, 5, I mean in Romans, yeah, Romans 6.23 rather, the wages of sin is death. What you earn because you are a sinner is God's death penalty. But there's another decree that's been issued as well. Amen. And by that decree, the effects of the first are negated. But the gift of God, Romans 6.23 also says, the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So the decree of death that was issued against you and I can be canceled out by embracing the second one. That all who put their faith in Jesus Christ receive not death, but eternal life. Amen? God sent His own Son into the world to die in your place and in my place to cancel out the death penalty that God decreed and that we deserved. and all who cling to Jesus. All. Not just the, the specially devout. Not just the ones of uncheckered background without a long story to tell about their past. Not just the ones who look really good and have been you know behaving themselves ever since they heard the teacher threaten them that something would go in their per- permanent record remember that used to be living death, deathly fear of that when I was in grade school you need to be careful this will go in your permanent record dun, 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 dun. you know <laughs> i was like oh, you know uh it was terrifying me right uh you know it was right up there with having your name on the board with a check next to it Ooh, gosh fear of God was in me at that point, right? Um, But here's the thing. The death penalty that you deserve because you're a sinner is canceled out by the blood of Jesus in the moment you put your trust in Him. And no matter what is on your permanent record, it is all wiped away in that moment. That you receive new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no more death for you. Well you're going to die physically one day. Probably. Unless Jesus comes back and you're transformed in the instant. uh, As those of us who believe in him will be if we're still alive when he returns. But death is not the same for you and I. As it is for an unbeliever. Our heart stops beating and we open our eyes in Jesus' presence. That's what death is. We walk through the door into glory. All who put their trust in Jesus have the death decree canceled and receive life and reward and blessing instead. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to do so. You may have been coming to this church for 50 years and you've never done that. And if that's, and if that is you, can I just invite you anyway to experience the new life that everybody else has been talking to you about all this time. And to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Might be your first day. Jesus said you must be born again. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, don't be afraid. God's justice does not sleep. He will bring just punishment on evil people and he will rescue and reward and restore his people. It is easy sometimes for us to believe that God must not see all the evil in our world. Because we look around and we see all the stuff going on in our world and we go, God, are you aware of this? Like, are you taking notes on this? Do you know this is happening? Yes, God knows. And He sees. But as the old Christmas song reminds us, one of my favorite ones contains this line. God is not dead. Nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth. Goodwill to men. God will one day. Bring ultimate justice. To the world. Evil will not always persist. An end to it is coming. And justice is on its way. And with it rescue, restoration, and reward for all who are members of God's people. So in the meantime, knowing these things, don't give in to fear or to doubt or to discouragement here in 2022. God is still at work. He is still there. And he is still a just and a good God who is working all things together for your good And his glory. Amen. May not all see it all come unwound. As it does at the end of Esther. But one day we will. And so in the meantime. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't let your doubts grow. God is still here. Still at work. Still bringing things. To completion. In his plan. Amen. And in the meantime. He is saving people. Out of judgment and bring them into his family. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were a God of abundant mercy and a God of perfect justice as well. That you display your mercy to a thousand generations of those who love you, but you do not leave the guilty unpunished. Father, help us to trust you with both of those truths firmly fixed in our minds and to love you as the God who loved us first and gave his son for us. Father, if there's anyone here who's never put their trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully working in them that they might believe, believe and experience new life in Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for all you've done for us, all you continue to do for us, and all that you will do for us on the day that Jesus comes to claim us. Father, in the meantime, help us to trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.